0: Welcome to Mason Institute Investigates, a podcast series produced by the Mason Institute funded by the Edinburgh Law School. In each episode we investigate current national and global issues involving ethics, law and policy in health, medicine and the life sciences welcome to our series on current issues in health law and bioethics sponsored by edinburgh law school's mason institute and the center for social ethics and policy at the university of manchester hello uh, my name is professor Emery farrell and i'm based at edinburgh law school um, i was a practicing lawyer focusing on clinical negligence litigation and other litigation in the areas of Uh, medicine and health and I worked in Australia and Ireland and I'm now an academic based uh, in the UK. I'd like to introduce my colleague Dr Sarah Devaney, off you go.
1: Hi, I'm Sarah Divani. I'm a healthcare lawyer as well with a background in clinical negligence practice representing patients who are bringing claims in relation to harms that they'd sustained um, during their healthcare. I'm now based at the University of Manchester, where I lecture both uh, law students and medical students on a variety of issues relating to healthcare law, um, in particular uh, clinical negligence, claiming and forms of redress.
0: Thank you, Sarah. Um, So as Sarah pointed out, both of us are engaged in teaching um, a range of students that are interested in the study of health and medical law and bioethics. And Sarah and I, we both used to work together and based on our background as well, we're both interested in broader questions around patient safety and patient redress um, and how that works in the context of the NHS in the UK. So we thought it'd be a good idea to get together and have a chat about some current topics in the area and uh, particularly some proposals for reform that have recently um, gone up the political agenda. And so Sarah, would you like to introduce uh, The background to that?
1: Well, it's funny because we've heard that there are um, reviews ongoing at the moment of the clinical negligence system, but we've got very few details about what that's actually going to cover. We don't have a sense of that, although Nadine Dorries has said that there are serious reviews ongoing. I think it might be looking at um, compensation and levels of compensation, um, which suggests to us, I think, that. This review might follow um, reviews that have been undertaken in the past and the recent past, which are very much looking at the costs that are involved in clinical negligence claiming. Um, because any money that is paid out in compensation to patients um, for injuries that they've sustained as part of the healthcare and to their legal representatives comes out of the NHS pot.
0: Costs it seems to be the focus of the current. Uh, proposals or the current round of reforms now you and I have been working in this area for quite some time, both as practitioners and as teachers uh, in the area, this is not new for us. Uh, in terms of understanding the dimensions and the I suppose the impetuses or the impetus for reform over many decades in the UK this is what I would suggest is the latest iteration of how uh, we should approach reform of the clinical negligence litigation system primarily focused on England but likely to have impact um, in the devolved administrations particularly Scotland and Wales uh, debatable in Northern Ireland but certainly we're looking at Uh, England being the front runner in this regard. So as you and I both know, um, often the uh, impetus for these sorts of rounds of reforms um, is preceded by a report from the National Audit Office um, about the dimensions of claiming under the clinical negligence litigation system, and particularly burgeoning costs in the area. So I suppose when I think about the cost in the area, it's interesting, a lot of it is is based on, uh, quite rightly, on uh, figures produced by uh, bodies such as um, NHS resolution, they're predicted, we need to look at the predictions, but also take a longer view. We look at over five to 10 years, well, what have been the actual payouts, the actual costs um, in the area, and break that down around claimant costs, defendant costs, as well as costs to the institutions as well. Uh, I know that one particular area has been of long concern to policymakers in the area, which is claimant costs. So, you know, you've specifically practiced in that area and in the English context, perhaps you'd like to talk about that some more.
1: There've always
0: there's always been a bit of bad
1: press <laughs> um relating to claimant lawyers costs in in uh, the clinical negligence arena. But there are reasons why that can be significantly higher than defendant costs. So, one of those is that the burden is on the claimant to establish that each of the tests that makes up a successful clinical negligence claim has been established. So they have to front load lots of um, costs relating to investigations and obtaining um, expert witness reports and so on in order to be able to establish whether or not the claim has a prospect of succeeding and should continue. Secondly, defendant costs have been under quite some pressure in recent years, so defendant firms often work um, on contract to the NHS and the terms of those have been um, constricted over time so that the amounts that they charge um, have, have been pressed down. So there can be this disparity between the two parties. But really, I think what we would like to do is to change the focus of the debate a little bit um, from an almost exclusive focus on costs in some arenas, um, which, while obviously very important, doesn't quite fit into the focus that we're really committed to as well, which is to linking in clinical negligence claims and what we learn about how harms happen um, to patient safety. And trying to um, learn from and prevent uh, subsequent harms being caused. So, how do you at-
0: understand patient safety and and the sort of the parameters of the debate and how perhaps we need to reframe uh, the current understanding of what reform means, which is simply about costs? I suppose mm-hmm. what you're saying is that that's an element but really where do we want to go and even why are we being forced to a situation of contemplating clinical negligence litigation when it really should be about systems learning and patient safety and this is really your area so I would I would defer to you in this regard
1: well I you know I do think there should be a connection between the two and um, all credit to NHS resolution which is the um, regulator Uh, that receives and defends uh, many claims that are made against the NHS uh, for clinical harms, who, um, which has said that it wants to be a learning organisation. They know that they're sitting on this vast body of data in relation to um, clinical harms uh, and are trying to uh, both use that and engage with other organisations and initiatives that that look at um, learning from where error has occurred and using that to prevent uh, future error as well uh, and we would like to see I think a, a much stronger link between individual claims which focus very much on the harm caused to that patient and yeah. wider systemic learning and prevention and, and you know clinical negligence claims are a really valuable source of data but they're a very small source of data so the level of claiming um, uh, hasn't really, in numbers terms, increased over the past 10 years. Uh, That's pretty steady. Um, And, you know, people are generally fairly reluctant to bring claims against the NHS.
0: I mean, certainly Um, all the empirical data and what empirical data is available is that there is a marked reluctance mm -hmm. to bring a claim. It's often at the end of a series of attempts on the part of patients and their families uh, to seek I suppose what we would call patient redress and that would be uh, again noted in the uh, empirical research in the area it's about wanting to know what happened to them where they did suffer harm get an explanation an apology financial compensation where appropriate and that may be where clinical negligence comes in but also that there is systems learning and professional co- accountability to ensure that what happened to them and their families doesn't happen to anybody else So we need to take in any concept of reform account of what the data tells us firstly about the rate of claiming and whether we are dealing with a crisis or not. The data doesn't show that but secondly what do we want to do with the data that's being collected Um, to I suppose engage with what the literature also tells us about what patients want when things go wrong. So my view is unless you propose a reform agenda that takes account of redress and specifically focuses on the patient safety agenda, you're not likely to achieve the results you want in terms of uh, a functioning NHS that is responsive to patients, respects and looks after uh, treating healthcare professionals in that context. Um, You're going to get a partial approach that's focused on costs that is perhaps serving of the institutions, but they also need to be at the service of patients yeah. and families, as well as those employed by them.
1: Absolutely. And I think as part of that, you know, there needs to be uh, an engagement by the NHS and NHSR with um, patient groups and initiatives such as AFMA, um, who we need represent-
0: to explain what AVMA sort of stands
1: for. And- uh, so, so this is an, a charity that has been representing patients for many years. Um, action uh, against medical accidents, um, and uh, so AVMA supports patients both individually, but also as as a group in trying to um, get learning from error um, much more high up on the agenda of the NHS. Um, And they have a variety of uh, initiatives um, looking at the harmed patient, uh, which, you know, um, NHSR could really engage um, constructively with to helpfully uh, understand the patient experience and um, use it as a learning resource much more fully. Uh, And the result of all this, as well as, you know, better outcomes for patients would of course be a reduction in costs which was our starting point wasn't it yes um the issue of costs if you are learning and you're putting in measures to prevent um incidents that you know it's emerging will happen uh, when certain circumstances exist uh then you're inevitably going to um have that downward pressure on on costs overall Uh, and um,
0: it's it's interesting with any reform agenda say for example a move towards a partial or full no-fault system for medical injury which is often accompanies uh calls for reform to clinical negligence litigation in the nhs if we look to comparative uh, systems that may operate for example in new zealand what we're seeing is a collection of data around the rate of avoidable um, or negligent adverse events Um, but the question is what do you do with it as you say if we if we address it at the at the coalface so to speak you bring the rate of negligent events down you bring down the rate of clinical negligence litigation claims and but ultimately as you say the ultimate I suppose outcome needs to be um, patient safety in terms of we all want uh, patients families but also their treating healthcare professionals to uh, I suppose to be enabled to feel good to feel safe in that environment and that's where I think we would both agree the focus needs to be and that simply proposing reform, whether on a cost basis or even abolishing the system, is not really going to the heart of it, is it? In terms of addressing that need for systems learning and patient safety. It's interesting that sort of learning process for patient safety. You can also see, uh, I suppose, an evolution over time from looking at avoidance of a a blame system um, to systems learning to perhaps creating a just culture. Um, and that seems to be high on the agenda now. Do you have any views on whether that is more of the same? Are we seeing a shift in
1: systems learning and patient safety for the benefit th- of all? I think I think there are real shifts and, and real promising um, policy and learning initiatives in relation yeah. to patient safety. Cultures are so important because what we learn from the major inquiries into um, harm that's been caused on the, on a large scale whether it's at a particular trust or by a particular practitioner it's often that there's been a culture around that person or around that area of specialism which um is afraid to point out that what is happening is not good for patients it's harmful and you know in a variety of ways whether uh, you, you know not giving patients dignity and respect right through to causing um, serious physical harm so cultures are so important um, and there have been um you know there's been a really important step in the implementation of a duty of candor which mm. places organizations and individual professionals under a duty to be open and honest with patients where something has gone wrong or could have gone wrong that could have caused them harm so it's quite a low threshold i think the needs in order to that for that to really achieve its aims there needs to be um, credible support in place for practitioners to, to enable them to feel that they can engage in being open and transparent without feeling that they're then going to be um, hung out to dry from a prof- professional regulation perspective or during the course of a clinical negligence claim. Um, I agree
0: with you that culture is so important, for example, even where you've got sort of uh, statutory protections or even non-legally binding sort of protections for healthcare professionals, to be open and honest, to apologise, to explain, you aren't seeing that shift in culture, Um, even with that degree of quasi or full legal protection. And I I would agree with you, it it comes to broader concerns around the culture in which healthcare professionals are operating, uh, particularly in austere or austerity time, shall we say, um, that we also need a, a broader understanding of the pressures that they're under. I know the just culture agenda was in part in response to the fallout from the Bar-Wa-Garpa litigation, litigation, um, too. but the whole idea of no blame, but also learning, but also understanding um, that there are a range of issues facing healthcare professionals um, when things go wrong um, mm. that are both systemic as well as, um, I suppose, down to them as professionals, but particularly in an Austerity driven environment a feeling that uh, a just culture involves a a broader understanding of the issues that are driving mistakes or problems or resourcing issues that may lead to mistakes, shall we say,
1: even Um, where they negligently occur. And I think, I think we could have a perhaps a a much more nuanced understanding of risk in healthcare um, from the perspective of. Patients and, you know, us understanding what what we're going into and what we're being exposed to. Um, And also, you know, both amongst patients and professionals, perhaps we could be better at um, tolerating the fact that things might go wrong and having a much better response to that. So rather than um, looking for, uh, you know, blame within that. Mm. Being able, to, you know, between patients and professionals and regulators, to really being able to find out why that has happened and what can be done to um, to get the best outcomes out of that, which is, you know, to try and prevent that happening to anybody else where well, possible
0: so yeah certainly the empirical data does say that uh, patients and their families are not interested in wanting to assign blame they really value good relationships with their treating healthcare professionals after all they're in a situation of vulnerability um, in relation to their bodies or their physical or mental health they want the support um, they want that good relationship um, from their treating healthcare professionals as well as the environment in which they're receiving treatment um, but Equally, they want uh, that where harm has occurred for that to be openly acknowledged as part of that reciprocal relationship with their treating healthcare professionals. So it can't be one way, Um, it needs to be reciprocal, but equally appreciating the shall we say the downward and upward pressures faced by healthcare professionals in a difficult environment in which many of them now have to work where there's not a lot of resources they're often overwhelmed they're operating in teams as well rather than just being on their own but often the law for example focuses solely on the individual doctor in question so uh, is the law for example fully capturing? Um, the dynamics of that patient-doctor relationship, perhaps where uh, problems do occur, where harm is caused, um, and focusing on one aspect of that relationship where it's, for example, broken down, focusing just on costs, for example, is never going to fully address the complexities. It's an easy political win, but it's never gonna focus on the complexities of empowering patients, respecting healthcare professionals and ensuring that the health system delivers.
1: For me, really, the main message is this has just all got to be tied up with patient safety. You can't okay. have developments in, um, and initiatives in improving patient safety, and then a complete you know, silo of, of claiming that, that doesn't tie into it. So NHS resolution is saying, that they want to be a learning organisation from the claims that come to them. So, you know, those are the good sort of messages at the moment. But I think we need to be saying that any reform of the Next system can't just be focusing on the issue of costs. I think that's a great place to end it.
0: Thank you for listening to Current Issues in Health Law and Bioethics. This has been a production of Edinburgh Law School at the
1: University of Edinburgh.
0: Thank you for listening to today's podcast we hope that you enjoyed it for further information check out the links in the show notes of this episode if you are interested in contributing to the podcast we want to hear from you get in touch through social media or by emailing us see you next time